two men will be working together in the fields, and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be going about their household tasks, one will be taken, the other left. So be prepared, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Okay then, welcome back to Countdown to Destruction. This is episode 11. This is a podcast all about the leftovers. Uh, my name is Matt Waters, or you may call me the Phantom Dominator. I'm watching these episodes for the very first time. This is season three, and I'm joined by the dynamic hunter, Ben Phillips. Ben, Hello. how are you? I'm good. We will explain why we've done this. Yeah. Nerds, basically. Uh, yeah, so we've hit season three. Um, uh, <laughs> it feels forever ago that you talked me into this and then I finally watched the first two and I was like, I don't know about all this. And then think about how much has happened since then. Like, Kevin's died, like, twice. And and earthquakes and second departures that aren't and all kinds of shit. And I think somehow equally as much happens in these first two episodes <laughs> of season three as has happened in, like, the whole show so far. It's fucking bananas. But we did have to... Well, I didn't have to. I wasn't watching the show. But you and the loyal few viewers that there were had to wait quite a long time for this third season. So was it, like, a year between one and two? Like, like or two? Uh, so, like, they finished in September of 2014 for season one, and then it came back in October 2015. Okay, so, so like, was... a, just, a, like, around a year. So, like, a normal amount of time for a, a show like this. But between two and three, it was like 16 months. Yeah, finished in December December of 2015. It didn't come back until April 16th, 2017. I think a lot of the delayed release date is because Game of Thrones had moved to the summer okay. that year. Yeah, it's, it's, it has gradually moved backward. Yeah, so HBO needed something to air in the Game of Thrones slot, which I just find hilarious. Like, I like the idea of someone going like, oh... Game of Thrones is normally back in April. I'll just tune in my television and watch... What, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> this first episode, I, I guess both of them, but particularly the first one, very sort of quick flashback image heavy. And there's quite a bit of sort of exposition-y, explaining the plot type stuff. I guess there was a chance that people were watching this show for the first time. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, they're... Because spoilers, production of this season moves to Australia... Uh, there's a reduced budget this season because it does cost a lot of money to film an entire uh, move an entire film crew to Australia. Less money yeah. than it does to move from New York to Austin. Cheaper to film there, but expensive to get there, I guess. Yeah, and so because of that, like they had the choice, they could either stay in Austin and do ten episodes, or they could move to Australia and do eight. And they went for the eight episodes, but because they've lost those two episodes. They have a lot of like groundwork to kind of set up for this season, and yeah. so this first episode is like pretty breathless. I think it like they both are. They both fucking move. It's just like <laughs> here's this person, here's this person, here's this person, here's this person. Keep coming, keep is, coming. I think they both hang together really well. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it, it's not like rushed. I don't think there's you know there's some stuff that based on what you've told me about like if they'd had 10 episodes, they would have liked to have done one about this character and that character. Like, you can see kind of, like, the kernels of those episodes in here, at least one of them, about the man on the pillar. But I'll see how it all plays out, but it it didn't feel negative that it was so fast. Yeah, it's... it's. I mean, I think a lot of, kind of, like, plans changed over the course of this, because, like, when they announced it, the entire main cast was coming back. Kevin Senior was going to be regular with Scott Glenn returning. He's only appeared in one so far of these two we've seen. 
Evie was going to be a series regular, and then obviously you watch it and you kind of like Evie's in the goddamn trailer, man. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah, so so basically this this these two episodes are pretty much our goodbyes to Meg, Evie, Tommy, and Jill. Oh wow. I didn't know one of those. Oh, I'm sad now. Okay, so like where we left off. I mean, see, season two began with a complete change of setting. Brand new characters. Didn't have anyone we'd seen before until like 36 minutes in. Complete character shift on the likes of like Jill. We had ghosts. We had international assassins. Kevin is apparently able to come back from the dead. There was an apparent second departure that was in fact... A hoax. GR invaded this town of Jordan, which which had no departures. It's kind of where we. Oh, and like everyone we know and love was all together in in one house in Jordan. That's how we we left things. So how do yeah, we pick cause, them up? Cause, well, because the leftovers always ends at se- seasons on happy notes. And season one end with oh Laura baby Getty. yeah okay and the dog. Enough. Well, spoilers for the season three finale then. Right. Let's <laughs> let's get into it then. Uh, this episode is called The Book of Kevin, uh, April 16th, 2017. Weird to not say, like, September, October, or November, and then either. Written by Damon Lindelof and Patrick Somerville, directed by Mimi Leader. You know who these people are by now, they've done a lot of this show now. So, we open, much like season two, with ostensibly sort of a non-sequitur, like a little vignette, an, an allegory, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's footage of this, like, pilgrim community in 1844 apparently welcoming something for the sake of it let's call it the rapture or a departure or something like that they are predicting some kind of event uh and it keeps not coming and the numbers of people like listening to this guy who is leading them uh reduce he keeps putting new dates up on a chalkboard we go from the 21st of january 1844 to the 16th of april to sometime in august yeah, and ultimately, only a single woman attempts this ritual of like going up on the roof at nighttime, dressed all in well, white. Well, there's there's more of them when she goes to the church, but the only one of her family, like her sure. father and son, abandoned well, her. Well, like they always show you, you can see other houses around when they go up, and it's like at first there's a person on every rooftop, and then the second time it's like them and one other rooftop, yeah, and then, it, and then, then it's the just end, her at the end. It's just her at the end, and then there's like seven in the church at the end. Yeah, or... and she goes. She goes and lies down on the floor with a group of other women dressed in white. So, over the top of this, was this a pre-existing spoken word section of a real-ass song? Or is yep, this, narrate- this so this That's is, insane. So, so, they wanted to commission a folk song, right. or like, or a song that would like sum up what's happening in the scene. Yeah. And somehow, Liza Richardson, the music supervisor on this show, pulled this song out of nowhere... They mixed it and like set it all up and stuff like that, and they were yeah. just like, uh, I think I've got the quote from Damon Lindelof uh, on I f- it. I forgot to look up uh, who it's by and whatnot. I, I definitely meant to do that. Uh, so the song is by is called "I Wish We'd All Been Ready" by the Christian folk rock band Good News Circle. Right. Yeah. So so she found this song. They cut the sequence to it, and Damon Lindelof's first reaction was, "Well, that fucking works." Yup. This what I when we when it started, I was like, oh, this narration they've done. Uh, you know, it makes mention of Noah and the Ark, uh, of the end of the world, and verbatim quote: Two men will be working together in the fields, one taken, the other left. Two women will be going about their household tasks, one will be taken, the other left. And it's like, 
where the shit did you find this? <laughs> you must have just got a massive erection the second you heard this. Like, yes, we've done it. Yeah, Not that anyone would know that it wasn't just an original composition, but that's... Les Richardson is fantastic. Yes. Um, uh, there's so many good music choices in these two episodes. I think there are three that we should have in contention to open and close this episode. Oh, and Well, there's some information that will come our way in episode two that's going to make music choices for the rest of uh, of our podcast quite difficult but a lot of strong music here <sighs> yeah but no this is this fantastic it's it's this perfect thing because this is a real thing that happened in 1844 this is the, the great the great disappointment in the millwright movement okay um, yeah because there's make... the words great disappointment are written on that chalkboard on the third after the third cycle, you know, very reminiscent of Matt's, you know, taking care of Mary, three versions of the same thing, and we see how it deteriorates over time. Uh, and the chalkboard is, like, on the floor, and it says, great disappointment. And I couldn't read underneath. The b- <laughs> to me, it looked like it said balloons, fools, or something like that. But I don't know. I didn't, I didn't go this far. But, yeah, this is a real event that happened, yeah. uh, and they're obviously using it as, like, a tone setter. I so were these people not... hoping to be raptured? Were they yes. Both... Right. Well, because, I mean... The... I did a Jesus very... Christ would come back. Yes. Well, yes, that is part of it. You know, like, the good Christians get to go to heaven, and then after, like, seven years, I think, in the book of Revelation, after basically many, many versions of the apocalypse happening, they come back and help Jesus, like, rebuild the earth. So I guess people wanted that, because up they go, these good, smiling, happy Christian people, dressed all in white, which... I mean, I don't know if they knew about this when, or if Tom Perota knew about this when he came up with the GR. I mean, being dressed all in white, that's not like a original thing, but one can't help but look at these people dressed in white and not think of the GR based on this show, especially how they transition it to the next scene after this. But yeah, it, it was all very like, mm, okay, this seems like a potential like forerunner to that movement and they're welcoming the rapture and the GR are responding to it. So I guess it's not that close. But yeah, again, much like the cave, uh, the cave woman thing with the baby in, in season two. Very mysterious. I look forward to seeing potentially how this will equate to what occurs in season three. Okay, so as I mentioned, there is this very slick transition. So the, the woman goes and lays on the floor with these other women uh, in white. I, as from what you've said, I guess the the last few that are doing this every day because like, we see they're like derided by the other villagers over time or whatever so i guess they're like the last few who are doing it but uh yeah the, the camera sort of pans over the top of them and then it becomes modern day jordan miracle the the visitor center uh with the gr sleeping on the floor as we kind of saw them at the end of season two and uh evie wakes up asks meg what they're waiting for uh turns out they're waiting to be murdered by a drone strike yes a missile from the sky blows up the visitor center and kills every everyone in the GR that's, that's like in that building. So that's a pretty fucking weird thing to do. But here you go. Meg gets to have one last sort of weird Meg moment as she's asked a question and she responds with a story about Siegfried and Roy and tigers and like just. A Megism. And like, you know, I guess, see you later, Liv Tyler. You were fun to have around for like, I guess a grand total of like six episodes, most of them in season one. Yeah, she was in three episodes in season two. She was in significantly more in season one. Yes. And significantly less in season two. Yeah. Like, what the hell? Like, oh, Liv, are you around for 
Literally one scene. Sure, why not? Either it's yourself. one of those things where like, you watch it and you go, like, did they film this at the end of season one? Is this just like something they did then? Because <laughs> it's literally the only scene you get set in 2015. Yeah, yeah and Evie bites it, and like, I was like happy that she... I mean, I didn't approve of her like character choices, but I thought that actress was good, so when it turned out she was back at the end of season two, I thought, oh, cool, see some more Evie. Like, she's in the trailer, as I said, but I guess that's literally... They used literally every shot of her from... <laughs> this season in that trailer because she's out of here and like you know you see like they like drill through the wall and like put like a fiber optic camera through to like confirm they're in there i guess and like you see dudes like running to like unmarked suvs and driving away i guess i mean we had it with atfec where like they this this is atfec doing it right i assumed but yeah atfec previously offered to kevin to come and murder everyone in the gr for him and you know we've seen we saw the raid on Holy Wayne's Ranch. Like they don't give a shit, so they just yeah. they just murdered them. I guess this event made national headlines that like the GR stormed Jordan. Yeah, uh, like so the, they just uh, killed them all. Bomb bomb threatening a national park on oh, of course <laughs> the day of the great departure probably doesn't get you a lot of leeway with no. in this new world. So I guess bye guys because three years later not an insignificant amount of time to jump forward uh, again this this series moves quickly Kevin and his hot dad beard survey the wreckage of this centre uh, he is wearing a Jordan police uniform and he approves a massive influx of visitors he confirms that wristburns are no longer needed and he and Tommy also an officer settle a dispute so he rides a white horse which is quaint as fuck more people should ride horses for no reason. In this town full of cars, he just chooses to ride a horse. No idea why. I guess because there's such crowds of people and it's easier to get through them on a horse than on a car. But Yeah, there's a lot of people around at this point. Like yes. when, when we go to Jardin, it's it's a lot more full than it has been previously because they're not limiting it to yeah. two I mean, buses we, worth of people. Yeah, the last time we saw this area, it was they were having like a dubstep rave and now it's just anyone who wants to show up to Jardin just come on by. This dispute they settle is about a, uh, a giant inflatable Gary Busey. If you recall, he was among the celebrities they pretend got raptured in season one. Uh, and these people claim that he's coming back and he needs to know where to land. <laughs> it's just <laughs> bizarre. One could be forgiven for watching this now and before they say who it is, being like, is that Donald Trump? Did they know him? Like, <laughs> But no, it is Gary Busey. He's coming back on the 14th, they say, and the 14th is approaching. We see flyers on the ground that say 14 days to go. And I guess that is our exact time frame of season three. I guess it's going to take place over the 14 days leading up to the seventh year anniversary of the sudden departure, which is, you know, cool. Nice little ticking clock to put on the season. So, you know, Kevin being back in the police, Tommy being a policeman with him, seeing them sort of like banter about this, you know, going over for dinner that night, seeing Tommy fucking smiling. All very welcome, I would say. Yeah, they've they've done good by Chris Silka this season because he actually gets to like do things that aren't being mopey. Obviously, he's a bit more. I don't want to say front and center, but like he's a bit more significant. We've seen a lot of him front and center in the last two seasons. Because that is that how he and Paris Hilton hit it off, and she she was like, you know, do you know what it's like for millions of strangers to see you naked? And he was like, yes, yes, I do. And now I wouldn't say I wouldn't say millions. Well, 
Yeah, so that's very quickly establishing our status quo here that, you know, Kevin's a cop again. Why the fuck not? We saw in the International Assassin, like, and the finale, like, that's what he was meant to be. Like, he picked the uniform of the suit, but he belongs in the in the police uniform. Uh, and he's right back there, so there you go. And um, he's doing a good job. He is! He wasn't a bad... Well... Yeah, he wasn't a backup. Uh, so Matt is giving a sermon highlighting how frequently seven years occurs in the Bible as they draw close to the seventh anniversary, as I said. He reassures everyone there that it's unlikely anything will happen, but if it did, it would be in miracle. And he offers to baptise those new to town in the spring, which is now refilled. And uh, Kevin looks on pretty somewhat irritated by this, I would say. Fun fact, the story that Matt is going over at the beginning about the king and Daniel and then the dream he couldn't recall. That king is King Nebuchadnezzar, which is the name of uh, Morpheus's hovercraft in The Matrix. When it blows up, he says, I've dreamed a dream and the dream is gone. Same story. All this is interesting because if you stay tuned to the real world in the next few weeks, uh, a brand new podcast is coming called The Sky Scorchers by myself and Mike Thomas, where we will be looking back at the three Matrix films, and the Animatrix. I had to plug that. I'm sorry. I genuinely thought you were going to have an interesting story there, and then you said the word Matrix, and I was like, this is turning into a plug. <laughs> that is interesting, though. It's King Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the... Ne- oh, whatever. We saw in Season 2 that organised religion is still popular in Jordan, while it wasn't elsewhere. We saw Matt giving a sermon to, like, four people in Season 1. But this is something else. Like, they are, like... They can't even all fit in the church. There's, like, a PA system to so that people outside can hear as well. Uh, I think it's it's also helpful that they have reached, like, if this is the rapture, the biblical rapture, mm-hmm. the the, the seven-year time period is yes. kind of explicit in the Bible, so therefore yes. people might be turning back to religion. Indeed. Oh, man, and, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, like, we've, hit seven, we've hit seven years and nothing's happened yet. Maybe this is the actual rapture. I'm going to go grab my Bible and do some research into this. Mm-hmm. I think it's just one of those interesting things about the world is that people were kind of in a haze and coma coming yes. out of it immediately and now that we've hit this kind of like seven seven year period people are probably yeah. looking for some kind of guidance that isn't cults and yeah. isn't choking sex parties when you're a teenager <laughs> that's also like a, a big chunk of time from the event so like as well as that it's also i would say enough time for things to return to some sense of normality like you know we saw that some people were doing that from the word go but a lot of people are hey no things aren't normal but like seven years that's quite a long time to process everything that happened in the church we see mary we see their child called noah (laughs) thanks everyone there look this this show is not subtle (laughs) yes a cute kid he is like i guess three now or just about to turn three yeah so you know again we're establishing time has moved temporarily matt is a more pleasant human because mary is back we, we went over this. So Kevin briefs the police department ahead of the 14th. He is visited by Dean. Remember Dean? Dog murderer Dean? Uh, <laughs> the fucking things I have to say because of this show. Uh, he claims that dogs are now taking human form. So And infiltrating the American government. Highest order of government, yes. Uh, so before this madness, um, Kevin briefly meets with Michael and Matt. The flyer that says 14 days to go, he believes that Matt distributed this. I like that when he walks in and Michael slams a laptop shut, he's like, are you watching porn? 
uh, it becomes very obvious what was actually happening there. And when Kevin leaves, Matt is like, did he see it? And there's like a leather like bound thing, like a document hole. I don't know. Well, well, I do know, but at the time I didn't know. Uh, this will all become very clear. When Kevin is briefing his officers, who walks in but Nora, agent of the DSD, she's back to work, everyone. Uh, good for her, getting a job. Not just sitting on those millions she has lying around. And she has a broken hand. Put yeah. a pin in that for one episode, I guess. Yeah, you know, nice to see both of them back to their season one jobs. It's still a cute couple, you know, he itches her back because she can't reach because of her broken hand. It's all lovely. Yeah, as, as I said, I, I think I compared it to you maybe off off mic, that it's this, this show is actually very weirdly similar to the structure of the Dark Knight trilogy. <laughs> where, like, season three, in a lot of ways, feels like a sequel to season one. Yeah. Like just cause and get, also the a, most ambitious of the three. Yes, but yeah, we get a, a there's a lot of like season one callbacks or things in in this season, whereas yes. season two kind of exists. It's nice little standalone thing in the middle, including Dean who hugs Kevin and he's you know it's like you know it's good to see you and all that, which was all very weird. And I like that Dean says, "Oh, you you remember me." And it's like, because, you know, he sl- slept-walked most of his encounters with Dean, and, like, when he was, like, fully awake, he's, like, he barely realises they're friends or whatever, but apparently they had spent quite a long time together, so... I mean, the last time they saw each other, they were dealing with a dead body. They were. Still... Actually, were they dealing with a dead body, or was she no, trying to convince no, Dean, to a dead body? Dean just stormed out. No, I don't think Dean knew that she died. He stopped him from killing her, and then she killed yeah. herself privately. So he I don't know... Himself. We were like, ooh, maybe he, maybe he knows something. Also, well, we also, well, I don't know if Kevin remembers everything he slept-walked or just those recent events, but we will see. Yeah, this, this crazy fucking story as a lovely Lindelof middle finger with, with the fucking, you know, our prey has, like, adapted and telling this elaborate story about a senator and claiming that the dogs have taken human form uh when kevin is he says you know they'll the, to get their finger on the button and kevin's like poor get a paw on the button very funny stuff <laughs> i love that like the most ridiculous thing you can think of happened in this world but people are still like bitingly sarcastic about anything strange sounding like is it less believable that dogs turn into humans than 2% of the world vanishes without explanation? I don't know. I love that Dean blows a dog whistle when Kevin doesn't believe him, I guess to see if he is one of these dogs that has infiltrated human society. And also, to what end? What does he think the dogs want to do? He was shooting them because they're not our dogs anymore, but like, what is he trying to claim that dogs... Oh, anyway... The dogs want to take over the world. Right. What's okay. your favourite What's your favorite batshit insane middle finger to the fans that we've been given so far? You are a vessel for the demon Azrael. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was my favourite. Followed by a, la- a, a particle laser or whatever it was that destroys all human matter. Not, not, the, not the chalice that he has to jizz into. Well, that drink. was just Patty being flippant, like... Yeah, know. but it, start, it starts off in the same but way. But these other two were off. deadly serious things that people said. Like, I knew from the word go, Patty was fucking with him. It's just it was quite an extreme thing to say. I'm yeah, happy but... to say this is not the last batshit insane theory we've got coming up this season. Shocking. Uh, 
Speaking of shocking, Kevin heads over to the Murphy house, where John is operating Isaac's old palm reading business. And you might think, well, Isaac ostensibly had a real gift. How's John doing this? It's because Laurie, his now wife, (laughs) is in another room with a headset. There are hidden cameras, and she's basically feeding him therapy uh, for him to say verbatim. Yeah, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> while she looks up their Facebook account yep, to, which to get... is something I suggested maybe Isaac was doing but they are concretely showing you that yeah she's finding out information John couldn't possibly know on Facebook um, yeah and Kevin asks Laurie to talk to Dean which does not happen Laurie... you don't tell a person going through a delusion of that no. magnitude that they're insane no except Kevin when she's giving her therapy about this this man's dead father and she says He was sad. He was always sad. He hid it from his kids. As she's looking at Kevin, it's like, hmm, this is very on the nose because that was his exact situation. Again, the show, not subtle. Not subtle at all, no. Uh, Well, it is, but (laughs) only about certain things. Um, John shreds all the money that they get paid to do this. Which I'm fairly sure is illegal. Yes, Burning money, shredding money, all illegal. The Joker is going to prison. For many reasons, but mostly burning all that money. Yeah, so I guess they just genuinely want to help people. I don't know what they do for, like, actual cash, but maybe Laurie has legitimate clients as well, I don't know. Yeah, so they're they're a married couple now, which is kind of weird. But hey, I guess you've got two actors you like who are sticking around while, like, the people they're associated with are bouncing, so you want to, like, pair them up. But maybe it's goodbye to these two as well, for all I fucking know. I get the sense that we're leaving everyone who isn't, like, Kevin, Nora, or Matt behind soon, but we'll see. They throw a surprise party for Tommy that he knows about. In terms of telling you what happens with the plot, not a lot. They have a good time, but there's lots to dig into here. So I like that this is exactly like the party for Kevin Sr. that he knew all about, but they did it anyway. That it is a sort of rare example of these people who are often quite miserable just being happy together, and it's nice to watch. Tommy drops a ton of exposition about, you know, you know, he is the one that says about John and Laurie, and I don't know, just that whole when he's like talking about his wish and everything, he 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 drops some uh, some knowledge there. Uh, Jill comes home from college wearing a Nirvana T-shirt. Sad to see Jill go. Uh, Jill was lovely by the throughout season two after being on my most hated list. I guess this is the evolution of her becoming a nicer person who actually gives a fuck because she's off trying to better herself at university. So Yeah, like she didn't go to school in season two, really, did she? She didn't, no. Yeah. Well, I think it might be in the summer, so it was we, can pro- we can probably, probably let her off. The summer. When they're all telling these stories about being 25, Matt is fun again. Thank you, Mary. Like, seeing this group of, you know, the lads all out on the on the deck with their beards and their glasses and telling stories. It's like, oh, what a warm, happy show this is. Oh, wait, batshit stuff has to happen immediately. <laughs> so, so let's 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 take the opportunity now. Yes. Rank the three beards. <laughs> uh, Kevin's beard is the best, obviously. Matt's is the worst. Okay. John's is middle, I guess. Yeah. I but John has like... excellent glasses to go with. He's his got Evie's glasses. Ooh, I didn't notice that. Nice. Good attention to detail. But you know, Matt, you know, he's more fun. He's 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 there, he's present, he's he's got funny stories. Kevin tells the story about how on his twenty fifth birthday he was hit by a woman in a car who had a 
two-year-old boy who was perfectly calm. That two-year-old boy was Tommy. That woman was Laurie, and they married a year later. Hey, maybe the reason that your relationship didn't work out in the end is you got married in less than a year and like immediately took on board a kid and stuff. I don't know. I'm sure. Or maybe people... maybe it's like some kind of metaphor for their relationship being a car accident. Ooh, very nice, very good. Kevin uses the phrase "divine intervention," and Michael and Matt. Like, study him like he's a rare bird or some <laughs> shit. Like, what makes you say those words? And I was like, oh, here we go. Um, uh, all will be I revealed love, soon. <laughs> I love their reaction. It's yeah. just like, oh, I just, just also, interesting Ma- turn Dap- of phrase. Yeah, dapper-looking Michael, into it. Kevin keeps looking at this party, sadly, at Nora, and I kind of noticed, before it's outright said, hey, Lily's not around. And uh, Jill says... Does she ever talk about Lily? And my first thought was Lily died. And I was like, oh God, Nora, no. Jesus Christ. Well, come on. We'll see where that goes. But I was just like, how sad can life be for Nora? But yeah, she is is clinging on to baby Nora. I don't think it's that dark. Of course it is. Our protagonist shot dogs to close episode one. Yeah, but dogs aren't babies. I know, I know. Well, that kid wasn't a baby either. I'll tell you that for nothing. I love Nora saying, were you guys talking about your penises? Just... (laughs) Lines like that are why Nora is just a ray of light. Even when she does, like, do some things that do border on bad or, like, it's, like, overly angry and stuff. You know, she'll come out with something like that and I'm like, oh, I love you. So, the next morning, uh, after Nora leaves, Kevin duct tapes a plastic bag around his head. And then the camera cuts away and we next see him emerging from his front door to go and help at the lake where people have poisoned the water in protest of the drone strike on the GR. First things first, the tattoo has grown. I do need to know if this is a real tattoo or not, because, I mean, they never talk about it, really. But <laughs> they it's... talk about it in episode two. They Yeah, a few more and I'll catch you. Yeah, but I don't know, it seems... It's so bad. Like It's either real and they're just polite about it. Or right, they chose I'm, to I, give him the world's worst tattoo. I have loaded an article okay. called Justin Through Explains. Oh, okay, I'm willing to let you read every word of this. I just uh, need to know right now, is it the real leftovers, The Leftovers star thought he said, spoke in a panel, in, panel over the weekend at New York's Vulture Film Festival where an audience asked him to explain the backstory of his back tattoo. And the actor had quite a story. So I had two dogs, both rescues, pit bulls, pit bull mix, and when they died, I dedicated half my back to one and half my back to the other. Whoa. So it's a picture of a rat, because my dog used to kill rats in Washington Square Park, which is not fun. It was horrible. She was really good at it. I mean, it's doing a service to New York also. Oh, and then a pigeon. A New York pigeon and a rat. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, the rat is new, I feel. It's like a feral rat on his back now. Yeah, so uh, that, that is why he's got those tattoos on his back, is because... Um, so those are real? Those are real. Fucking hell. Do you know what I observed in seeing some real life interview footage of Justin through? He seems quite boring. <laughs> and like, he does. He plays this like really like charismatic, emotional, really good at being angry like character, and in like real life he's just like this soft spoken, like normcore dude with a horrible giant tattoo. Who, anyway. who wrote who wrote the script for Iron Man Two and Tropic Thunder? <laughs> script, come on. Um <laughs> So, I mean, in the moment, I mean, this hasn't been disproved, but it kind of has, but it kind of seems like he is killing himself and coming back to life. I think we can just say now, I think he basically gets a high off almost dying because he has actually died twice 
And I guess this is his kink now. So there's that. It was quite extreme to see, you know, like full on duct taping a bag around his head. Okay, so so you think, or well, obviously he's getting a high well, off Well, he says he does it to feel or like, you know. Do, do you think he's suicidal? He says he's not. But I do don't you think know. He's... I mean, he's denied every step of the way that he is. And now that his life's in a better place, I guess it would be fitting for him to actually be. I don't know. I, I do not know. I don't, I've given up on trying to, like, assess Kevin's mental state because fucking look at this show. <laughs> but yeah, all we know for now is he put a bag over his head and we later see him coming out of a door. So... That. Yeah, like I, I adore like because you watch something like that, and it's one of those moments where I got very similar feelings to in Clockwork Orange, the scene where they um drown Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, and you watch it for like two minutes, you just like, how the hell are they doing this? And you get a very yeah. similar thing with this. Where yeah, it was like, did Justin Theroux have to do this? Like, were there people just like immediately like an inch off camera ready to intervene i mean you have to imagine that they are they've got scissors and they're just like right if if he blacks out he's got a signal and we get this bag off him as soon as possible because it's very extreme to watch for sure (sighs) anyway and then the cut to him walking out the house yeah just like smiley so yeah we now have basically a group of people that are remembering the remnant and like wearing t-shirts with Evie on them. Do they have Evie's name on them? Or I think Evie's the one that they kind of like it's... centered around. Because I mean, I I likened it to basically like they were Tumblr fangirl in the GR, and maybe Evie did in some way like blog about all this, and like other teens latched onto it. I don't know, but we do have this group who are now like they're by no means like joining the GR. They're not silent or anything, but. They are protesting what happened, and you know what? Fucking right. The government assassinated some random people, so... Well, you kind of get the feeling that, like, the Guilty Remnant, they probably were doing a big crackdown on them, especially after this. And so, in the three years, there's, like, a cult of personality around them where, oh, these people were just non-violent protesters. They martyred Evie, they martyred Meg. Yeah, like, the Guilty Remnant are non-violent protesters, and the American government murdered them. And then you sit there and you, you watch... Three se- or two seasons of the show, and you think, no, the Guilty Remnant, they were non-violent, but they were awful, awful people. Yeah. Well, yeah, but even so, I don't support them being assassinated by the government. No, not at all, <laughs> but it's just it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can imagine the message getting distorted and someone, like, on a Tumblr or something like that, kind of, like, <laughs> eulogising them, saying, like, these people were killed for having different beliefs to the government. Yeah, for sure. Without, co- without context for, like, the terrible things they were doing, such as throwing grenades on buses and <sighs> Man. a lifetime ago even though it was like two weeks ago it was the last episode of recording matthew and uh, yeah but that was a while ago anyway kevin jumps in the water to confirm that it's fine and then reluctantly accepts a baptism and says it didn't count this scene is all played like he's gonna walk on water or something <laughs> like he like in the middle of this, like, very violent, like, shouty, rock-throwy type thing, he just marches up onto this high rock and then leaps in and everyone, like, looks at him like he's... Jesus. <laughs> Sorry to give the game away here, but yeah. Um, Michael is transfixed as as he jumps in and it's like, I mean, is it fine or can Kevin just survive it? Could you imagine if they did that in episode one? Like, they poisoned Kevin again. <laughs> Like honestly, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put the show past doing that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so driving away from this, uh, Dean ambushes Kevin's car and uh, fires upon it. 
but Tommy shoots him square in the motherfucking face before he can kill Kevin. And then a massive blood script goes off. Yeah. Like, really fucking big. Yeah, like, it's very violent. Kevin, you know, goes over the official story with the GR, that, like, you know, there was, like, a gas leak and one of the, like, cigarettes and blah, 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 blah. It's like, does Kevin actually believe this? Or is he just saying, Tommy, don't tug at this thread? Like, I don't know. I would assume that Kevin isn't that naive, but who knows? He Well, I, I assume he's saying that because... They have to stick by that story because well, yeah, they're the police. John. Well, he these police, but also John. Ah, John. seems well, very, uh, very convinced that Evie's still alive. Yes, that is coming up, of course. Kevin, uh, you know, after Tommy kills Dean, not the first time he's killed someone in the show. Um, they discuss, you know, having to kill people in the line of duty and whatever. And Kevin begins. He sort of obtusely shares his story about killing Patty in the hotel. Uh, it doesn't give all the details, but, you know, the feeling is real to him or whatever. So that's, uh, And again, we get flashbacks. But, like, if you were new to the show and you saw that, you'd be like, huh? <laughs> he was an assassin at one point? Weird. And then the dog taking the fucking sandwich is another cursory fuck you from Damon Lindelof. <laughs> like, it's real, man, the dog. It wants the sandwich. Um, oh, the yeah. show. So, Mary informs Kevin that she and Noah are leaving and that Matt is writing a book about Kevin. He's not happy about this, goes over to confront him. Matt posits that Kevin cannot die in Miracle and hands him the only copy of the book, which Kevin briefly considers burning but ultimately does not. So, you know, we we got like four precious minutes of... Happy families, Matt and Mary, and Matt's happier, and Mary gets to talk and do acting. Hey, she's a good actress, <laughs> turns out. But we get this revelation that, like, Matt won't let her leave town, and, you know, she happily does stand up and do a wave when he talks about how she woke up from the coma and, like, lifts their son, but I wonder how many times he's, like, made her do this, and I guess it would get a bit grating, but yeah, this... The controlling behaviour of Matt returns. Like, we saw some of it with Nora in season one, like him trying to manipulate her or, or gaslight her. And, yeah, this this dark side of Matt remains. And, you know, uh, frequently his faith is his downfall. It also seems to get him through things, well, obviously. But, you know, it is his strength and his weakness. He has fallen victim to a lot of stuff because of his sort of charitable nature. And he believes so strongly in this that it has making him... He's pushing her away from him. And yes, I guess this is Mary exiting the show. Another lovely fuck you after she didn't talk for <laughs> all but one episode hey, of the she probably, got, two... she probably got quite a bit of money. Yeah, like, it's it's weird, because you kind of get where Matt's coming from. Like, what he's doing is categorically awful. Yes. Uh, but, like, he's had his wife back for, what, three years? And mm-hmm. he doesn't want to see her go. And just in case, the only thing that's keeping her to keeping her alive or keeping her not in a coma is this place because because that is the only proof we have is that she woke back up in yeah. miracle but like you know put the decision in her hands like you know yeah. she must on some level worry that it'll happen if she leaves so let that be her decision matthew she says the old testament's getting old when kevin asks why he's writing a book about him so you know when he storms over there we get this revelation that john is helping uh, Matt is doing it, and Michael, and that is that is what 
was being covered up when uh, he asked if he was watching porn. They point out these three resurrections that Kevin, or, you know, he drowned himself in the lake and there was an earthquake to save him. He drank poison and arose from, like, being buried alive and he was shot dead by John and then stumbled back into town. So, pretty compelling. But to this, Kevin says, I'm not fucking Jesus. (laughs) And Matt gives... The wonderfully punch-me-in-the-face response of, I'm not saying you are, but the beard does look good on you. <laughs> and Kevin like almost swings for it, which is great, great stuff there. And yeah, as you mentioned, John is in denial about Evie. He says the line, like, that I'm supposed to believe that because they say that her dental records match. And I immediately, out loud, went, yes. Yes, you are. <laughs> That's literally... Poor John. Um, you know, we, we didn't see Evie die, but come on, man. Like, a complete sort of flip of his character from sort of a sinister man who refuses to believe anything and is very angry and carrying trauma to a guy that seems quite, like, peace, love, and happiness and he's a bit of a conspiracy nut and he's writing a book about, like, a miracle man. So... Yeah, I think, I think like, he's probably not... He doesn't look to be in a position of authority in Jordan anymore. No. Presumably since the man he shot came back to life. And... Well, that might shake one's faith. <laughs> in no faith. <laughs> Militant anti-faith. Exactly. You know, like, based on the trailer and, like, what we saw of him early in this episode, I was like, oh, John looks like he's in a more likeable place here. I'm not saying he's not likeable, but, like, it's a bit concerning, this, this Eevee subplot, and that he is contributing to this book. The Book of Kevin, hence the episode title. He did um, kill him. <laughs> if if we're ranking like oh people... we'll get to the rankings benjamin <laughs> i mean like if we're talking about like people important to the book of kevin yes. i imagine one the of man them that shot him <laughs> might be one of them yeah how do you release that without being arrested <laughs> pseudonym i guess lots has happened this is long and we haven't even got to the second episode yet so let's close this one out with in australia <laughs> yeah it's gonna get fucking weird from here you can tell from ben's laugh um a woman collects some doves, delivers some to a nun, who says to her, or asks, Sarah, does the name Kevin mean anything to you? The camera reveals that Sarah is being played by Carrie Coon, who is wearing, like, age... She's being aged up through makeup and and whatnot. Uh, And Sarah says, no, this name does not mean anything to her. I freaked out, I paused it, I sent you a picture, and I was just like, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it. So who the fuck knows what to think here? We've got potential time travel shit, we've got potential long-lost relative of Nora, we've got... I've, I've got nothing. I don't, I don't have... I'm not equipped with the questions with which to solve... get you to solve this for me. So we're just going to leave it with that, I think. God, you'd be so pissed off if I said that's the only thing we see of this this setting in this season well i know it's not so (laughs) one thing i noticed from the end credits i don't know if this has always been the case but there are three story editors for this show uh i I don't know why that stuck out to me as something to write down but i was like (gasps) three that's that seems a lot i don't know but yeah that's episode one uh a fuckload happens i would say even more of a like crazy change of status quo compared to uh, season two episode one but Strong I mean, stuff, season, right? season two, episode one has the benefit of it being 
it's all new information, yes, but it's still very focused. Mm. Whereas this episode, you have the past sec- segment, you have the death of Evie and Meg, you have the Australia segment, you have this long bit in the middle with Kevin, and but then all the other characters in the show are there as well, yeah. and so there's just lots of little and like tiny establishing pieces. new roles for everyone, and also playing catch up on the plot so far, and like yeah, like ostensibly this is a Kevin episode, yeah, but it's the least it's focused called episode the book of the of show, Kevin. yeah, but it's the least focused episode of the show we've had since mm. probably the season one finale. All right, well, it's time for don't be ridiculous, don't be ridiculous. Uh, April twenty third, twenty seventeen. This ad. Directed by Keith Gordon, written by the lonely Donkey Kong, and specialist Contagious. <laughs> I mean, it's actually written by Tom Perota and Damon Lindelof. Those those names come from a Wu Tang Clan name generator. You may know of these uh, things to Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Uh, that is that is his Wu Tang generated name. Uh, we gave ours at the beginning of of this episode of the podcast. Oh well, we find out why they did that. <laughs> I have to to say, so this this episode starts with... The opening credits are back. We didn't have opening credits in episode one. We get them this time. I think to preserve this surprise, because they would have spoiled the changing theme song. They open with the leftovers credits from season two, not the season one ones. Yes. The Uh, good ones, not the bad ones. With the actual credit music to Perfect Strangers, the 1980s sitcom. A thing I only knew because I watch all these with subtitles so that I can write down exact quotes if I need to. And it said, Perfect Strangers theme. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Because that would have just been lost on me. And I would have been like, why the fuck is the opening credits now some 80s ass, like, amazing, but, like, weird song? Uh, yeah, the opening credits uh, to Perfect Strangers. Uh, The reason for that will become abundantly clear. And the uh, title, which is a reference to Perfect Strangers as well. Oh, okay. Don't be ridiculous is the catchphrase of, I think it's Balky on the TV show. Mm. Information you also gave to me is that we have a different song for every episode going forward now. Uh, kind of sad. I did like the, the song from season two. But at the same time, hey, something different each season. I guess that gives us some nice variety. So... We open with Edward, a.k.a. the man on the pillar, falling to his apparent death. Uh, but the next day, Nora is administering the, the secondary departures questionnaire to this man's wife. And she claims that she witnessed him dim out. Uh, she interviews some other witnesses who have conflicting stories. Because, uh, I mean, she says dim out and this other person's like, just it was just a flash and he was just gone. It's like, hmm, that's very different. Uh, one of them mentioned... Burst like a bubble. Burst like a bubble, sorry, yes. One of these witnesses mentions a preacher also saw or, or, or something about a preacher. So she goes over to confront Matt. So Edward's wife reveals why Edward is up this pillar. And she says that he settled for the pillar after they got arrested trying to crucify him. That he wants to punish himself, much like Matt did. His, his sort of repentance in that little town. And appropriately enough, Matt will reveal that this woman lived in that little shanty town the whole time that he was up there. So, crazy shit. And what a weird thing to do. But hey. When Nora goes over to confront Matt, he's like, oh, is this about the book? I can't remember how it's phrased, but basically she she just, like, nonchalantly says, oh, no, he told me. I'm just staying out of it. It's like, good for you guys. Like, you know, sharing with each other after all these secrets have been your downfall before. Um, and just, like, again, a Nora thing of, like, eh, whatever. There are bigger things to worry about. Matt likens himself and Mary to Edward and his wife and how she was, like, so devoted, even though he didn't even acknowledge her. And it's like, hey, 
kind of fuck you, Matt. Like, she couldn't acknowledge anything. This man was doing this by choice. Don't, like, passive-aggressively, like, criticise Mary, if that's even what you're doing. But Matt admits that this man had a heart attack and that his wife asked to give him a Christian burial and to not tell anyone that this is what happened. I don't know why she would want this to... Like, why this is preferable for her to... Well, I mean, she is the woman from season two who... Oh, is she the the Christian woman and the, the paddle and... Yes. Oh, okay. I still don't know why Matt had to say <laughs> Brian, but I didn't recognise her. I, well, okay, well, there you go. That's that's bad work by me, everyone. No, don't worry. It, it's, it is a very subtle thing, because I think she is credited as the same character, I think, in both episodes. But, okay. um, yeah, she is, she is okay, the, that woman. That's why she would go to Matt and, you know... Yeah, a bond there. A weird thing, you know, like you said, they were planning to give Edward his own episode, basically, or something that heavily focuses on him, and I guess this is a very condensed cliff notes Yeah, I think I can't remember if it was going to be, like, they were going to do, a, like, a, an episode set, like, entirely from his perspective, or, like, a sequence from his perspective, <laughs> and then it would end with him dying, and then kind of cut to this one, but it was just one of the casualties of, of yeah. losing two episodes this season. Like we we also lost like a potential Jill and Tommy episode and a potential Ooh. episode focusing on the Murphys, which are the kind of the main ones because as we'll find out later, like Regina King wasn't really available yes. this season. So Nora goes to get her cast removed. You know, we saw in that first episode she had this broken wrist or hand or arm or whatever. But the doctor states that a nurse saw her deliberately slam her hand in a car door. Uh, she denies doing this and uh, leaves and after she leaves she receives a call from Mark Lynn Baker yes the man from Perfect Strangers the real life actor from Perfect Strangers who faked his departure within the the canon of the show and thus was denied a casting as Nora's boss because he exists within the show and they found a way to bring him back he gets a lovely chunky little role here yeah Um, he he definitely gets a lot more to do sure does he asks if she'd like to see her children again and requests that she meet him in St. Louis. Heading into this, we get a lot of like cute teasing between Nora and Kevin about hampers, about this book, and like, you know, don't walk on water while I'm gone, and you know, all this sort of stuff. They're adorable if you needed any reminding. Like, they had some quite dramatic stuff happen at the end of season two. Like, we drifted a little bit away from happy, lovely Kevin and Nora, so nice to see that come back. Nora calls George Brevity for permission to go to St. Louis. Again, nice continuity. George Brevity was the guy that came to town uh, with this new secondary departure uh, questionnaire. And now Nora's back at the DSD. She works for him. So that's nice. Uh, He refers to the coming days as the seven-year itch, which I thought was just great phrasing because it is the seven-year anniversary of the departure. As Nora makes her way to St. Louis... She attempts to use this machine, and it will not work for her. Very much like Gloria Burgle's little <laughs> character gimmick in Fargo Season 3, which had not aired, I don't think, when this uh, was on. It certainly was filmed after they this. Were, they were, so, so episode one of Fargo was airing about two or three days after each episode of The Leftovers. Oh, really? So wow. so you had Carrie Coon on two shows at once, not being able to work technology. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Particularly ask if she's car- traveling with a child and it won't let her select no, and it's all very like, oh, and Lily and, uh, and your kids, and uh, it's all grim as fuck. So, Mark Lynn Baker, firstly, is amazing. 
what a great little performance from a guy from... I imagine Perfect Strangers was a bit shit. Like, it was all... big. I know it's big, but like on most 80s sitcoms on some level, a bit shit. Yes, it's not Cheers. Okay. He's a really good actor. <laughs> like, I mean, he's saying some ludicrous fucking shit. He talks about like neutron radiation and a particular type that is traceable from departure sites. And a group of scientists claim they can recreate this same energy in a device. They made a departure machine, allegedly. Mm-hmm. But is it departure machine? Because as Nora states, <laughs> you blast people with radiation. Yeah, there's no way to disprove that they didn't go anywhere. There's also no way to disprove you didn't just fucking murder them. Is she going to get in this machine and then emerge as Sarah, the old Australian lady? <laughs> like, what that, the fuck, man? That would, be, that would be a very ballsy thing to do when they're on this show that is very ballsy. Yes, it would. I love this idea that because these people had IQ tests and gave testimonies that they were of sound mind and showed a newspaper from the day they did it, that this in any way proves that this is a departure machine. Like, it doesn't matter if the people that do it aren't crazy. It doesn't prove this isn't a death machine. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they've got an education or they pass an IQ test. Like, this is is people being bombarded with radiation. And (laughs) it's, ah, it's just, like, Martin Baker's... Martin Baker's delivery of, like, I have two degrees from Yale. I forgot to look this up. Is that true? Does he uh, actually have two degrees from Yale? I think he might. That's insane. Yep. So he's a good actor with two degrees from Yale, and he was on a fucking 80s sitcom. That doesn't add up to me. Yep. Uh, he has a BA and an MFA from, from Yale. Well, go him. Uh, yeah, this is all really powerful stuff. I don't really know what to say about it. It's just really well acted nonsense. Yeah, I think I think the best bit is is Nora turns to him and is like, you're suicidal. Yeah. Like, this this isn't a real thing. She's got a um, lot of that in her life, hasn't she? <laughs> she does. And then he basically turns to her and said, three people out of four went missing. What are the odds, what are the odds of that? 128,000 to one. <laughs> yeah, she obviously like just lists it off. And then he goes, it was completely random. There was no system to this this is my way of taking back some fucking control. Killing yourself. <laughs> yeah, and his and his delivery of that was just yeah. so good. It is. I would think his odds are even longer because her three people that went from the same house, you know, there's some DNA shared there, they, they inhabit close quarters. The cast of Perfect Strangers are four random people from different backgrounds collected together, so I would think it's less likely that would happen, but... Who knows? Nora smokes in her hotel room. She didn't smoke before, I don't think. So never saw her really. Never, never saw her smoke. I mean, she bought cigarettes for Kevin. And she's like, oh, they're for him. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, she heads from here, not home, but to Emin, Kentucky, where Lily is playing. Uh, Nora intervenes when another child steals from Lily. And then who the fuck shows back up? Everyone's favourite resident dipshit, Christine. Who's married. And has another baby, yes, that isn't hopefully from a sex offending cult leader. But we don't know. Maybe that's her kink. Nora leaves. Uh, a specific kink. I know. Hi, I'm looking for cult leaders. <laughs> Preferably with an Asian fetish. Nora, like, you know, hurriedly leaves. She doesn't head back to Jarden, but heads to Austin, Texas, to visit Erica. Well, she flies back into Austin because Jarden is just outside Austin. Sure, but she she stops off via Erica. 
And then when she gets home, she posts a very large photo of Edward from the pillar, uh, his corpse, his, his fucked up corpse, uh, to disprove his departure. Before we go any further, Nora reveals to Erica that she did, in fact, deliberately slam her hand in that door. And I was like, oh, to cope the pain of losing Lily. <laughs> no, 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 no. She got tattoos of her kids' names. By the by, just Aaron and Jeremy, no Lily. I, I don't know about that. She immediately regretted it, pointed to a random symbol she saw on the wall that she thought was a phoenix, and got that tattooed over the top, and then was so embarrassed about it, she or whatever, she slammed her hand in the door. What did she choose? The Wu symbol, the Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> W, and what Wu-Tang did she band. call them? No. The Wu-Tang Band. Fucking amazing. <laughs> Who the hell came up with that? That's amazing. Nora, you were immortalized at number one. And then they jump on a trampoline while Protect Your Neck plays. So, <laughs> sorry, television has peaked. <laughs> it is the one true art form. Community's trampoline episode has been topped. <laughs> This is the best use of a trampoline on a TV show. Uh, the Simpsons trampoline episode has been topped. It's, it, it's just majestic. Because it's yeah. like, there's so much stuff in this episode. Yeah. That's just so, so insane. Like, they yeah. still managed to get, like... Hey, Regina King, can you just have, like, a very quick conversation and then jump on a trampoline for us? Okay, thanks, <laughs> bye. Go win some Emmys. But yeah, like, this 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 whole... This this episode has, like, some really dark things. Yeah. Like, the Martin and Baker conversation is really dark, even whilst they're, like, doing, like, weird pseudoscience. Nora going to see Lily is dark because it's, like, this is the yeah. child that she isn't allowed to see anymore. And, like, <sighs> Nora losing it at the at the ticket barrier because it won't let her out on her way to go, to go see Erica. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. She, she's got some, like, proper anger on her. And then you get this, where the slow build-up and then... The music kicks in and it's just slow motion jumping on a trampoline for about 30 seconds. You're just like, what is this show and why aren't more shows like this show? (laughs) Speaking of this, uh, you know, her her flipping out at the ticket bear. I mean, Gloria Burgle should just go and see the parking lot King of Minnesota and sort that right out. Anyway, on her way back into town, she is pulled over by Tommy. Christine called Tommy, which is highly interesting that they are on speaking terms. You know, we know that Tommy, or we can infer that Tommy was in love with her at one point. He protected her. You know, I guess he was in that in the first place to be close to her or whatever. Or, But yeah, the, they are now on terms where she would call him up. Very strange. I think I think they've both like matured in the last three years. Yeah. Obviously, Christine, wherever she went to, she found someone that she loved and was able to go like, no my biggest regret in life was leaving my child on the, the floor of a truck stop bathroom. Yeah. Maybe I should get in contact with that guy. Yeah. I don't know how she found him. That's that's the part that I don't get. Fucking Facebook, she... man. <laughs> Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. She's on them both. We know that. Tommy says to Nora that he spent 10 years knocking on the door of a guy who had no fucking interest in him when he was right where he belonged all, all along. And fucking A, Tommy. <laughs> like, I've been waiting for you to come to this realisation uh, since I learned that, you know, you were being a dipshit to your dad. Uh, I got the impression from the Garveys at their best that he had only recently found out about his biological father. But yeah, he, we, we learned that he was told on his 10th birthday. I think and... he only found out and had access to alcohol fairly recently. Right. Which is probably what feels. But, I mean, he says he spent 10 years knocking on that door. So, I mean, you know, maybe a bit of a ring the doorbell and run away type situation. I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, Nora says that 
she wishes Tommy never left Lily for her, and he quite rightly points out he didn't even know Nora fucking existed when he did that, so... It's not a nice thing to say, it's also not nice to accuse him of, like, weaponizing this this thing at her or whatever. Like, he didn't fucking know, like, I know it hurts and everything, but, yeah, he had no fucking clue. You know, we find out that Nora, like, willingly, because I was thinking, like, this can't be legal for Christine to just show up and be like, oh yeah, I left her on the floor of a bathroom, but I'd like her back now, please, when... Nora legally adopted her, but no, Nora didn't fight it. I do think in America there is a lot of legal precedence for a birth mother. I know, but, like, if she revealed that detail, oh, I left her on the floor, like, surely, sorry, game over, pal. Like, I mean, potentially, but... I don't know. Anyway, yeah, Nora in a very, very bad place here. Kevin's gotten over his stuff, or has he? I don't know, but, yeah, Nora is in quite a dark time. Kevin has not fucking got over his stuff. No, because what does Nora do when she comes back to the house but catch Kevin asphyxiating himself? They talk it out, and she answers a phone call. Uh, Marklin Baker gave her a phone and said she would be contacted about this departure machine or what the fuck ever. Uh, she is told to go to Australia and take $20,000. And uh, she agrees. And Kevin asks if he can go too. Uh, so Kevin claims he tears the bag off every time and that he doesn't want to die. I don't know if this is a sexual thing or a, or a literal like feeling anything thing or chasing the high of near death. Because, you know, people do this. There are reports that, you know, like the... The flood of endorphins when you're, like, close to death and whatnot, and... I don't know, I... I mean, but normally they're masturbating at the same time. Sure. Is the difference there. Is, sure. like, it's like a timing thing, as opposed to... No, he's just getting close, and then... Mm. I'm still not entirely convinced that he isn't testing his own ability to die or not. Well, I'm sure this will be confirmed one way or the other, but... Or maybe it won't. Maybe this is the entirety of this, and we won't see him choke himself again. But it's all its all quite something. <laughs> he asks her to have a baby with him, and she does the most insane laugh in response. <laughs> and in fairness, what a transition. I don't want to kill myself. Hey, let's have a baby. <laughs> is quite a thing to say. And yeah, like, Kevin, Kevin is not good at the timing. No, he's not. And I don't know if he sincerely wants this, or... I mean, it just smacks of, hey, you're just doing this to try and, like, fill a void and whatnot, and this is maybe a bad idea. And she's like, hey, we're happy. Let's not fuck that up. So I feel that is a decent response to that kind of ludicrous, at least ludicrously timed question. That kind of ridiculous question? Yes. That kind of ridiculous question. So we end our episode back in Australia. A cop hits a kangaroo while didgeridoo music plays so that we know it is Australia. He is confronted by four women on horseback who believe him to be our Kevin, Kevin Garvey. Uh, His name is Kevin, Uh, but Kevin Yarborough. They shoot him with a tranquilizer, they tie him to like a seesaw, and they drown him in a failed attempt to prove that he is our Kevin. One thing I like is that in the police station we see like a weather report or whatever, and he's talking about how it's coming up to the anniversary of the 15th. And because of time difference, I guess it would have been October 15th as far as Australia and yeah, Japan I think it's like, and whatnot. It's like 2am 2, 2 in the morning. Yeah. So as far as like countries in, in those time zones are concerned, the sudden departure was on the 15th, not the 14th. Which I love. I love the idea. Like, if I think they have given a concrete time for it happening mm. in the show previously. And you just know that if they'd called it the 14th, 
in Australia, all the Reddit warriors would be like, uh, excuse me, show, actually, <laughs> you'll find it took place on the 15th because of time yeah. zones. You know, knowing we're moving to Australia now and, like, that little detail, are we going to get something crazy where, like, hey, it's the 14th and nothing's happened, and then, ding, 15th in Australia, bam, whatever it is happens. I don't know, but, yeah. This chief refuses to let one of his people go home, and this... I mean, it seems like a tiny little town with, like, not much need for a 24-hour police support. It's Australia. There's no population no one lives in there, Australia. No. <laughs> this guy's dog is sick and, like... Basically, they do a lot of work to set this Kevin up as a bit of a dick. Yes, like, he sh- he hits a kangaroo, he shoots the kangaroo, he denies someone the right to go home to be with his sick dog. He, like, makes fun of, like, how he... Whatever, he's a dick. Anyway, these women, they quote what sounds like it could be something from Matt's book, which raises questions about many things, as this is the only copy of this book, as far as we know. But yeah, it's like he raised his hand to them, and when they didn't respond, he I'm paraphrasing, he like jumped in the water with his stone or whatever. Like, And we, you know, that is what happened with Kevin in, in Jordan. So this has to be from the book of Kevin. How did they get access to that writing if it's the only copy? What are they trying to prove? All very interesting. Uh, very dark that they kill this man. And like they keep asking, what if it's not him? And the lead one is like, it is him. And then, no, it's fucking not. They, you just murdered someone. <laughs> and who the fuck comes out of the nearby house? But Kevin Sr. Stick himself was, you know, like... Two amazing roles in one year, Stick in the Defenders, Kevin Senior in The Leftovers. One of those contains better acting, I would assume. I've only seen ten seconds of it in this, but hey. I'm going to get a whole lot more next week, because we have 60 minutes of Kevin Senior doing Kevin Senior things I need to know the deal with Kevin Senior. There's been hints, there's been stuff, I need more. Much like episode one, this moves very quickly, a lot happens, lots of cameos, it's almost like a checklist, like moving down everything we need to tick off before we just move, like, our favourites to Australia and say bye to everyone else. So so let's let's, let's have a a list of people who we've now seen the end of. Yes. Evie. Farewell to Evie. Meg. Farewell to Meg. Dean. Farewell to Dean. I'm going to presume Erica. Farewell to Erica. Jill. Farewell to Jill. Tommy. Farewell to Tommy. I was surprised when you told me that. Uh, Christine, I guess. Farewell to Christine. Uh, Mary. Farewell to Mary. I'm going to guess John and Laurie. No. Okay. But not much more of them, I'm going to guess. John, Laurie, and Michael are all still around. Okay. Well, Michael is a surprise. All right. Anyone else who I've missed there? Oh, we have that is that is our full list of we, Lily. We have, Lily, Lily, Lily is also gone. Okay, but yeah, so so a lot of these people are credited as regulars, but they're only credited in the episodes in yes. which they appear, and many of them, many places above Carrie Coon, who this show is secretly actually all about. What a 2017 it would have been for Carrie Coon, I guess. Anyway, yes, it was. Speaking of characters, uh, it's time to rank some characters. More than we've ever had, because we've got to bring back some people that once occupied the list. That is the rules. If you are ever on it and you appear again, you get back on the list, even if you're not actually a regular. So, bottom to top. Yes? Yes. Number 15, Dean. R.I.P. Dog Murderer. You got what was coming to you. Yes. Number 14, Meg. R.I.P. Fuckface. Number 13, Evie, R.I.P. Fuckface's protege. Number 12, Matt, you were nicer, and then you were writing a book about your friend and banning your wife from leaving town. You're not R.I.P. 
number 11, Christine. I'm glad you shook your brainwashing and came back for your kid, I guess. I mean, you still took a kid away from Nora and you still left that kid on the floor, but... I don't know, maybe swap Christine and Matt there, but... Number 10, Michael. You were nice, but now you're helping with this crazy book and you seem a little... I don't know, Michael seems less likeable in this very brief appearance, but I guess there's just not a lot of stuff for him to really do. Number 9, John. Nice to see that you're happy and whatnot, but you are conning people on some level. And you did shoot two people, including the protagonist of the show, and you're helping write this crazy book. Number eight, Laurie. Nice to see you are happy and whatnot, but you are fundamentally conning people on some level. <laughs> and you used to be in a cult, which I've determined is not as bad as shooting two people. Number seven, Erica. Good for you, sis. Uh, bye. You know, she's left John. She's got her own place. I hope you're happy. You gotta um, be in the greatest, yes, greatest scene of television ever. Mary, nice to see you're walking and talking. Good for you, sis. Bye. There's a theme to this list. Uh, number five, Tommy. Uh, again, infin- what the hell? Infinitely nicer when he's happy. Uh, this actor should be in things. I think he's actually quite good uh, when he's not forced to just be a glum little dipshit. I'm glad he's at least seen some sense and is kind of reasonable. It was a shock to me to learn within this recording that this is the last we're seeing of Tommy, but hey. Uh, Number four, Kevin Senior. Welcome back, big man. Let's raise some hell. We'll see what we've got from you next week. Uh, Number three, Jill. Good for you for going to college. Bye, I guess. (laughs) Number two, Kevin. Hasn't murdered an animal or anything yet. Seems mostly good again, minus this new kink. I don't want to kink shame, but he's keeping secrets is what I'm getting out there. And he's possibly Jesus. So that gets you quite high up. But Nora, number one, is nicer than possibly Jesus. And Wu-Tang Band means that, I'm sorry, you're permanently number one, and you retroactively replace Jill at number one in all the (laughs) season two episodes. Nora is the greatest character in anything ever. She said Wu-Tang Band. Those are your character rankings. There are going to be a lot less people next week, aren't there? There are going to be a lot less people next week, because I'm fairly sure the only regular in episode three is Kevin Senior. Wonderful stuff. There are more in episode four. And I think literally half those characters, if not more, I said either R.I.P. or bye to. So Yeah, wait. So how many do we have that are still with the show properly? One, two, three, four... Five, six, seven. Seven. Seven out of 15. Literally over half are gone. There you go. Um, but, you know, at least we got to see Dean, Christine, Jill. Well, not Jill, because, I mean, she was always around. But, you know, bringing back Christine and Dean just to sort of tie up their loose end. Yeah, uh, like, you get to, like, like Christine gets her shit together. Yeah. Um, Dean, we get an answer to, like, who he was talking to, kind of, in that finale episode. Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. We have started season three. It's fucking mental. We only have three episodes of this podcast left to record. We only have six episodes left to watch, Matthew. I know, it's insane. And one of them's all about Kevin Senior. That's bold to devote that much time to a character who's been in five episodes. four or five episodes so far, yeah. And to say goodbye to a bunch of people that we're potentially more emotionally invested in in favour of that. But hey, he's mysterious and we have to wrap up this mystery. Uh, we also have to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Go to entertherealworld.com, check everything out there from Broadcast Depth. Sky Scorchers are coming soon, Nebuchadnezzar, very interesting story, I think we can all agree that was. And yeah, three more of these to go, and you may not even hear the final one. It may never release, because it will occur on October 14th, 2018, the date that the show 
ended within the narrative. So hopefully you get to hear it all, but fingers crossed, knock on wood, etc. Thank you, Ben. I have done that. Uh, We're definitely going to have watched it by, before then. Yes, we will, but will people hear it? I don't know. I, I don't want know. Be, I want to be able to watch the Watchmen TV show. <laughs> That's true. wu and Forever. Protect your neck, everyone. Goodbye. Oh, well. Dance with the mantis, no for slim chances. Chantis, anthem, swing like Pete Sanford. Taking it straight to big man on campus. Brandish your weapon or get dropped to the canvas. Scandalous, made the metro panic. Call static, with or without the automatic. And while I'm at it, yo, you got cash passing, it's drastic. Got to send half the dough.